3: So I think for the listeners who may have heard or may not have heard the show prior to this, I let Dr. Hamill explain to me what H-H-T actually stands for, but go ahead, tell the listeners this phenomenal set of syllables.
4: Hereditary, hemorrhagic, Telangiectasia. extasia. <laughs> That's
1: very <laughs> impressive. Welcome to the club that you didn't want to join. We're the voice of rare disease, and this jingle doesn't rhyme. Nordpod.
3: Nordpod, Nordpod. My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to Nordpod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello there, friends. Welcome back to NordPod, the voice of rare disease. On the show today, we're going to welcome Philip Bright, a senior at the University of Kentucky who has been living with HHT since he was diagnosed at three years old because he was screened because his parents have the condition, which, as you know from the last show, is congenital and passed down as a dominant trait. He spent his adolescence, his middle school years and his high school years living with this condition and managing the symptoms with support and treatment from his doctors and his family. We joke about how, you know, genetics can be a blessing and a curse, and thanks, Dad, for giving this to me. I have the same condition as you. But at the same time, his life has led him to a point where he's made a decision to pay it forward. And what I mean by that is he just got accepted to medical school, and is going to pursue a career as a pulmonologist to help others just like him. As we said on the last show, among all the things he's learned living with this condition, and doing his undergraduate research fellowship with Dr. Hamill is that a significant amount of people with HHT are undiagnosed, which can lead to major problems later in life. He's an incredible young man with an exciting future ahead of him, and we talk about all the things from the impact of his family to living with bloody noses, empathy in medicine, and what he'd like to see in medicine as a pulmonologist in the future a great show. Enjoy. Philip Bright, welcome to NordPod.
4: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about HHT and how it's impacted me today. So we wanted to have you
3: on the show, A, because you are a great example as the listeners we'll find out of someone who's actively paying it forward to make things a little better for what they went through that they didn't ask to go through. But also because on the last show, your doctor, Dr. Adrian Hamill was on and we talked about what it was like for her to have you work under her in the undergraduate research fellowship. And this is kind of a tie that binds show about doctors, patients, researchers, and I, and, Channeling my old forty-eight-year-oldness, the next generation of advocates. So let's talk about genetics, right? Again, lots of syllables there. But you have a condition called HHT, but it's congenital. Do you feel
4: like you ever want to say thanks, Dad? <laughs> you know, my uh, my middle brother, he got lucky. He did not get diagnosed with it. So sometimes I do want to say thank you, Dad. Me and my youngest brother, we both got the short end of the stick with it.
3: So you had a chest scan when you were three, right? <laughs> pretty young, and you have something called a pulmonary, or art- I'm not going to say this right, but what- <laughs> help me say this word, arteriovenous?
4: Pulmonary arteriovenous malformation. That's a lot of syllables. So what exactly is that? So it's a malformation that, if you think about it in like a normal normal person, they have an artery, capillary bed, and then veins. But in a person with HHT, and for me, example, my capillary bed is basically messed up in a way that you have an artery that is connected more directly to a vein. So you have the high blood pressure from the artery flowing directly into the low blood pressure vein. And that can cause malformation to expand over time. And ultimately, it can rupture and it, it can happen. And for me, it's in my lungs, but it can also happen in your brain, um, your stomach and GI tract and also your spinal cord. You ever think at this time in your life, you'd know these things? <laughs> you know, no, I did not. I in high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, I did a lot of career exploration, but then I, I fell in love with medicine. So here I am. Yeah. If I feel like your adolescence was kind of like um,
3: predetermining your future because you were stuck in this this sort of, um. oh, I've got to deal with this now as a kid. And what else can I do? Can you talk to us about what it was like growing up, middle school, early high school, you know, having these nosebleeds and these symptoms?
4: Yeah. So the the pulmonary AVM never really caused me too much trouble because it's always been small enough that the doctors can't really operate on it to get rid of it. But another symptom of HHT is the severe nosebleeds, like you mentioned. And it wasn't just any, you know, typical nosebleed. I was almost, the blood came so quickly that I would have to use my hand sometimes to catch the blood. That's how quick it would rush. And it would take almost five minutes to get it to stop. Um, they were they were pretty intense nosebleeds. Do you ever get to the point where you say, but you should see the other guy? <laughs> No, I never used that, but that's a good one that I should use next time. I'm going to
3: give, I'm arming you with everything you need. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. So in terms of like, um, you know, growing up with this condition, was there stress and anxiety more than usual? How did you find ways, if you did, to deal with this? And how did your parents help you get through this or live
4: with this and grow up to be who you are today? Definitely when I was you know, younger and not as interested in medicine. Uh, It was a lot of uncertainty. Uh, You know, not knowing what's going to happen and what could happen, of course. But I think the good thing, uh, the one positive about that's come out of this is since HHT is a genetic disease and it's a dominant genetic disease, so siblings have 50% chance of getting it from their parents is that a lot of people in my family have it, so I don't feel like I'm alone. Whereas compared to other rare diseases, one person in their entire family might have the disease. But I feel like that I have a good you know, support system from everyone around me. So I think for the listeners who may have heard or may not
3: have heard the show prior to this, I let Dr. Hamill explain to me what HHT actually stands for. But go ahead, tell the listeners this phenomenal
4: set of syllables. Hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia. Gazentite <laughs> That's very impressive. <laughs> Again, I mean, the only reason I know that is from the, the summer that I worked with Dr. Hamill. Otherwise, I probably would not be able to do it either.
3: Have you or your family been able to meet other
4: kids with this condition along the way? Other than my you know immediate family, I haven't met any other person with HHT because it it is uh, fairly rare. The only experience I've had with other patients is through the research that I did with Dr. Hamill. But the one thing that was the downside was during COVID, I wasn't actually allowed inside the hospital, so I watched uh, the hospital visit via Zoom, and I also did read a lot of patient charts in their history. So I saw a lot of similarities between you know my diagnosis and how people reacted. You know, just having so many questions like what's gonna happen now? Where to go from this? So I felt I definitely felt the connection while researching with the patients that I was researching.
3: So I'm reading here and based on my chat with Dr. Hamel last week, this is a condition that's not normally tested for, especially in children, because it is I think I think if the stats are correct, like one in five thousand children have this disease, and it's a dominant, not a recessive gene, but unless the parents know they have it, there's no reason to know they should test the children. Am I getting that right?
4: Yeah, you've got it spot on. That's kind of, that's why the main reason why I want to go into medicine and work with HHT is that there are so many patients out there that are undiagnosed, and the the symptoms are there. There's the telangiectasias, which are little red dots on your skin and then the severe nosebleeds. But if you don't catch it early, you can kind of go down a slippery slope of parents don't get diagnosed and then their kids won't get diagnosed.
3: So you're currently a senior at the University of Kentucky. Are the nosebleeds something you can like spidey sense or are they just totally random?
4: No, it's at this point, because they are pretty intense, it is something that I can spidey sense. I can like feel it start almost running. Um, so I have a pretty, you know, once I feel it running, I, I know to immediately uh, lift my head up and start pinching my nose to try and minimize any bloody nose that I'll get. Are you like buying T-shirts at Kohl's every week? <laughs> no, it's not that bad. I've I've got it down to a science at this point. <laughs> I, I
3: would hope you have all the life hacks down to deal with this. Wow. So are you not allowed to have aspirin or
4: any blood thinners? I'm not too sure about that. But the one thing that has come out of this that I know I'm not allowed to do is scuba diving. That was kind of a big hit because this summer before all this kind of happened, I had just gone scuba diving in Costa Rica for a summer trip. So I thought I was going to have a life-long, you know, scuba diving adventure in store for me. But now I've been told that I won't be able to scuba dive. Well, let's really lean into that
3: because You know, I was diagnosed in my 20s and I was supposed to go off and do all these things and I watched my friends do them and I couldn't do them anymore. I'm getting that sense from you as well. And Mm -hmm. what are the things that, I mean, it's hard to not feel jealous or envious that, oh, you got to go do this and I didn't because I have this. But to what extent are you going to miss things you couldn't do and what can you possibly do now that you can't do those things?
4: I mean, I've probably been swimming since, I could walk, so I've always been in the pool and stuff. Uh, swimming is a big part of my family history, so I've always enjoyed going to the pool, and then, therefore, I've always enjoyed going to the ocean. So, when I first went scuba diving, it was so cool going down 40 feet into the ocean and seeing something that I've never seen before, and now it's that's gonna be restricted to me, and I'm only gonna be about one feet into the water snorkeling because I won't be able to use the, the oxygen tanks.
3: Yeah. I mean, people get nosebleeds that do not have HHT when they scuba dive. Probably the last place you want to be at this point for your own safety, I assume.
4: Right. Yeah. I don't want to be eaten by any sharks, but the the reason I can't go scuba diving, it's not for the, the nosebleeds. It's actually, it's for people with long AVMs. Dr. Hamill explained it to me, but I don't know the exact science behind it, but it has to do with it's similar to kind of the bends, you know, when you come up too fast, mm,
3: Yes, um,
4: you can get air bubbles that pass through the AVM and go straight to your brain. And then if the, there's a chance that the bubble might not dissolve and can ultimately cause a stroke. Also something you do not want to have. Correct. Especially in
3: the water, of course. Agreed. Agreed. And how has your social circle been through high school? I mean, this is probably not something you can or want to hide no um
4: it's honestly i think it's almost kind of a cool fact to tell people at this point because i don't feel like my life is really in danger so i get to almost be an advocate for it and just spread awareness my uh my girlfriend she at this point it gets old for her because i talk to her about hht so much but i really do enjoy telling people about it and just spreading awareness to anybody that i can especially anytime I see somebody get a nosebleed, I have to mention like, Hey, just an FYI. If you have any other of these symptoms, you know, maybe go get it checked out. And again, like your social
3: circle, your friends are outside of the asterisk. That is this condition you have to deal with. Do you feel you lead a regular, whatever normal me? I'm again, I'm channeling my aging gen X or whatever normal is for, 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 for a 19 year old, 20 year old college student.
4: For sure. Um, I would, Other than the the typical hospital visits every once in a while and then the common symptoms, my life is completely normal, and I, I really have no complaints about it. You know, I'll go play soccer with my friends. I'll go hiking, camping, swimming. You know, I'll do everything. Well,
3: with that, we will take a quick break and be right back with Philip Bright. I'm just going to call you Phil. I feel like we're friends at this point. <laughs> okay. I, I love that this is a condition that affected your your life, your family's life, and now you want to pursue a career in medicine. I don't think it should have to take living with this condition to make you want to go be a doctor. But I commend you on wanting to sort of it's a it's a labor of love, you know, to go to med school and get your degree and then do residency, internship, fellowship. But clearly, you know, you are trying to create a career for yourself to help people just like you.
4: So my uncle, he passed away when he was in his 20s, and I never got to meet him. So with him and then the research that I did with Dr. Hamill and seeing all these stories about kids, you know, young adults and even old adults being rushed to the hospital with HHT, I feel like I have a unique perspective and a reason to pursue medicine and ultimately diagnose HHT and my goal is to make early diagnosis for HHD so that these rushes to the hospital and dangerous circumstances don't have to happen for families, and that they can keep their families together.
3: I love that. I do want to talk about your fellowship with uh, Dr. Hamill. How did that come about? It
4: was basically kind of spur of the moment. So when I went in for one of my annual checkups, I just approached her and said, hey, Dr. Hamill, you know, I'm a pre-med student pursuing... I want to go to med school. Do you have any research that would be available? Because I obviously have HHT, and it affects a lot of people in my family, so it's something I'm passionate about. And so she told me to go ahead and apply to the Cincinnati Children's Research Fellowship, and I went ahead and applied, and we we matched, and that's how it began.
3: So what did you do in your work with her?
4: So I was actually very lucky because this was the summer when COVID had just picked up. So the hospitals were all shut down and stuff. So the actual research fellowship through Children's was canceled, but she was able to have me come on and do remote research. So I helped them organize their uh, patient data and charts. And then I also attended hospital visits with them and uh, just collected data with what the patients had to say and everything.
3: So there's a phrase called inside baseball
4: which basically means like you're
3: inside a club, you kind of know the secrets, there's some life hacks here and there, and you had a chance to work in, well, virtual clinic per se, or or like an ad hoc clinic because of the pandemic with Dr. Hamill. What what were the biggest takeaways for you from that experience?
4: The biggest thing that I remember experiencing was when I was attending the hospital visit with Dr. Hamill, and she was telling somebody uh, about their diagnosis with HHT, and just, you know, the way that they they reacted, it was a bunch of questions after that, you know, like, what exactly is the disease? What does this mean? How is it going to affect my life after this? And I just remember the personal connection that I had with that patient through our disease. And then that's something that I want to transpire while I'm a doctor. You know, being able to have a personal relationship with a patient, I think, is something that's super important. That's a very sort of, I would
3: say, a prescient answer, especially these days when there's a sentiment that it's really hard to have empathy in medicine when you're a doctor because there are lots of restrictions on how much time you can see and who gets billing. I mean, I'm getting in the weeds on stuff you probably are going to have to learn about one day. And it's it's a blessing and a curse to understand how to navigate that. But, you know, my question, because I think, you know, before we hit record, for the listeners, you told me you got accepted into medical school. So first and foremost, congratulations. Thank you. I'm really curious to see future casting your experience there, because there really isn't a lot of empathy training in medical school, and yet you're coming into it with the perspective of already having empathy embedded in how you want to practice medicine.
4: I think the where, where it really kicked off for me was it wasn't even the research, it was even before that in my freshman year when I was volunteering at the hospital. And this was probably my by far one of my most favorite experiences. I worked in the emergency department and I went around and spoke with geriatric patients because a majority of the geriatric patients, they came by themselves because they were either waiting for their family to come in or they weren't going to have any family come visit them at all. So uh, there were several patients where I, I sat down with them and we just talked for 45, even to an hour long and just had genuine conversations. There is a, one couple that I'll never forget. At the end of our conversation, they, they got up and said, I just have to hug you. This was amazing. Thank you for coming and talking with us. And I think that's really where my you know, drive for empathy and having these genuine relationship with patients first began. Again, it can't be
3: understated how important it is for there to be at least some kind of relationship between the doctor and the patient. So one thing in medicine that has been of the utmost relevance for years and years, cancer, rare disease, whatever it is, is to hope you find things early. We used to use the term early detection, finding it before it becomes a problem. And in your case, it's how do we increase screenings when it's very difficult to know you may have something worth needing screened
4: so i think the biggest thing which we had just talked about is having those genuine relationships with patients i want to be the type of doctor where a patient comes in and doesn't it's not just about why they're in there but it could be about anything because i think that helps open up the door to finding out different symptoms that they might be having that's not directly related to you know to why they might have first come in. Um, So I think you just have to be a good listener and look for signs that might not be directly related. And, you know, that will help open up the door to many different things that could be happening.
3: Yeah, and and again, someone in your situation who knows he's a carrier of this gene, there's a guaranteed certainty that, you know, your kids would need to be screened one day when when assuming you may have kids one day you, you are aware of this. So you have another sort of like a, a loophole when you start to talk to patients that you're aware this should be a conversation to have. I wanted to spin off into the guidelines. We talked about this with Dr. Hamill last week.
4: What do you know about the HHT guidelines? I know some about it because Dr. Hamill talks about it a lot because I know that she worked on it a little bit. But I know that the guidelines are basically the one-stop shop anything in terms of hht Uh, it's for patients and doctors and it's basically the guidelines that help make a diagnosis for hht and then also what to do after a diagnosis Um, and i know it ranges from pediatrics to adults as well what medical school did you get accepted to i'll be attending the university of kentucky
3: that's amazing are you like on cloud nine? Like, oh my God, I'm going to med
4: school. I got accepted in October. And now since I'm a senior, I've just been cruising through college, uh, happy as can be. I'm going to nod my head here
3: on the radio that senioritis is the best thing ever. <laughs> I can wholeheartedly agree with you on that. It's been amazing. So how are you spending your time? You got, uh, what? what's it? It's March of this taping. You got two months left.
4: I actually just turned 21. Uh, in January. So I've been going out to bars with friends and uh, just hanging outside, trying not to focus too much on class and just enjoy college before
3: it ends. That is exactly what you're supposed to be doing. So I, I completely concur that you should be doing all the things you need to be doing as a new 21 year old in this country. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Thank you. It's really extraordinary how you and your family have sort of stepped up and supported this cause. How long have you been involved with NORD?
4: I've actually, I've never heard of NORD until Dr. Hamill approached me because she was approached to come on the podcast and there was talk about having a patient come on. So she approached me and asked if I wanted to come on. And I was immediately responded yes, because like I said, if I can increase awareness for HHT, I'll do it.
3: Yeah, it's a fabulous sure. organization, and I encourage you to to dig into what they're doing because they, they do have an HHT community that you'd be a phenomenal addition to uh, leading webinars or getting involved with communities and some of the organizations. I know the curehht.org would probably benefit significantly if you haven't already started to uh, volunteer for them.
4: Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that out. So this is a, like a happy
3: ending. I love it. It's, we like when good things happen. We hate when bad things happen to good people. But here you are living your life to the fullest extent you possibly can. You know, I mean, kind of rip scuba diving career. But, you know, over under, right? You're happy. You're healthy. Yep. You're, I'm uh, happy as can be. <laughs> so I'm reading that you still have to go through routine monitoring every couple of years for your AVM. Is that like a scan anxiety, or is it just something you're routinely expecting to happen?
4: It's, uh, routinely expecting to happen. But the, the good thing is, is that it's related to how much it grows. So originally, when I first found the AVM, it was two years from that diagnosis. But since it hasn't grown, uh, she's doubled the time that I have to get it screened for. So now it's four years. And then if it doesn't grow, it's, I think she said it's probably going to jump up to more like, eight, 10 years, sometime in that range.
3: Well, good for you. Good for you. What a great story. Philip Bright is a senior at the University of Kentucky, newly admitted to med school and an HHT advocate. I'm so thrilled to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
4: Thank you for having me. This was uh, an awesome experience.
1: That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us your rare disease story in your own voice by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66. And we might just use it in a future show. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Health. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary, Leslie Nordstrom, and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Valerie Mocken. NordPod is recorded by Matthew Zachary and mixed and edited by Kyle Moore. Our theme music is by The Salvatones. Learn more about the music of The Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnote.com. That's media at offscript.com. Or visit us on the web at offscript.com. For more information about Nord, visit nordpod.org.
2: Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, it's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor Masterworks Advisors focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com slash advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors, LLC, and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks.